This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1242. And our title today is Kui Cthulhu or Cthulhu. It doesn't really matter. We human beings cannot possibly wrap our tongues around the name of the Elder God. Our podcast title today is Cephalopodcast for reasons which will become obvious. Now, Today, I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. Though we may not be. We may be <laughs> gibbering, hollowed-out shells of our former incarnations. Because today, we are talking to US-American writer Sunand Triumbach, or ST, Joshi, noted biographer and bibliographer of H.P. Lovecraft, as well as an authority upon world supernatural literature. In fact... ST has enough authorial, editorial and academic credits to have earned several degrees at H.P. Lovecraft's infamous Miskatonic University. And merely to list his own works would be to consume far more time than we have available to us today. So forgive us. He is here as a guest of the Necronomicon Lovecraftian Conference and will speak here in Melbourne tonight at the Royal Melbourne Hotel after talking in Canberra and he will be moving on to Hobart and Sydney in due course. Hobart on Wednesday the 26th of June and also in Sydney on Friday the 28th. And we'll repeat those details later for people who may wish to rustle up their tentacles and get on down to a talk about Howard Phillips Lovecraft, who was born in 1890, passed away in 1937 at the early age of 46 of cancer, I believe, ST. Yes, cancer of the intestine, a tough way to go, but uh, uh, he accomplished quite a lot in those 46 years. Hmm. A lot more than... um, people would tend to think if they weren't Lovecraftians, as we are here on Zero G. Now, my first introduction to Lovecraft's work came arguably way too early in age. I couldn't have been much more than 10 years old, and I had my the copy of the first book that I read, uh, H.P. Lovecraft's The Haunter of the Dark, in a, in a very uh, magnificent pamphlet horror edition, which has now been thumbed to death over the years. I didn't bring my copy of the Necromomicon in because it's too heavy. <laughs> it fills up too much my backpack. So your introduction to Lovecraft was quite early too. Uh, Lovecraft is a great writer to get when you're in your teenage years, because, and especially for boys, perhaps, because they're looking, I think, to for some sort of imaginative escape from mundane reality. You know, you're going through all sorts of weird changes in your life and your body and all this sort of thing. So you want to kind of escape. Uh, so you go to fantasy, horror, science fiction, um, and that's what got me. Uh, I initially started reading some fantasy, C.S. Lewis, uh, the Narnia stuff, but uh, pretty much gravitated to horror and started reading poetry. Oh, Ambrose Bierce, and then one day in my public library in Muncie, Indiana, in the Midwest, uh, I came upon these three volumes by H.P. Lovecraft. Now, I dimly heard of him before. I think I may have encountered him in in an anthology before, but uh, these three books looked just fascinating. The covers were very odd, bizarre, and I read them, and I I became a Lovecraftian for life. (laughs) 
or unlife as the case may be because mm. when you get into the Lovecraft stories you realise that there's a lot in there that's unconventional except to horror fans now we're all saved from being called on the exact pronunciation of Cthulhu or Cthulhu because Lovecraft was ambiguous about it and we can't say it properly anyway so his sunken home the nightmare corpse city of Ryla is at the Pacific Pole of inaccessibility which is uh, the point in the ocean furthest from any landmass and it's halfway between New Zealand and South America is that this is the closest you've been here it is. Uh, you know, Lovecraft himself, of course, never strayed outside the United States. Uh, I have gone to Europe and back to my home country of India, but uh, I've never been anywhere close to Australia before, so I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Mm, don't feel any call to go further out into the oceans? Mm. Not yet. <laughs> now, I thought the personal geography was pretty important to Lovecraft. Um, New England informs his stories as much as Maine does Stephen King or Pittsburgh for George Romero. Uh, Do you think that um, uh, the areas that he was familiar with, I mean, we're talking about some of his stories that are actually set in urban places where he's actually lived before. Yeah, Lovecraft was born and spent most of his life in Providence, Rhode Island, um, and I was lucky enough to live there for myself for about six years when I when I went to college at Brown University, uh, college where Lovecraft should have gone to or wanted to go to, but since he never graduated from high school, uh, he didn't have the chance. But uh, uh, Providence meant so much to him. I mean, it, it it was really his home base. He never really felt comfortable anywhere else. Uh, he tried. He lived in New York City for a couple of years, you know, in a, in a failed marriage, and I think uh, that. Experience Experience in some ways made him realize how much Providence and New England meant to him. So when he came back to Providence after that, uh, that's when he really wrote his greatest stories. And sure, they're set in Providence, but then they really they, they become they encompass the entire world, the the universe, uh, based there first in New England, but then going on uh, much wider. And the universe for Lovecraft never seemed to be a step away. It could be under your floor. It could be behind a bricked-up wall. It seemed like he could just open a door into these areas. Yeah, Lovecraft, uh, you know, his imagination was was what what he called cosmic. Um, He recognized the insignificance of the human race. In fact, insignificance all Earth life uh, in the vast vortices of space and time. Uh, You know, uh, uh, a minute ago in cosmic time, we did not exist. A minute hence, we shall cease to exist. Uh, But the universe will still be there, not caring, not uh, worried about this this little... uh, ink blot on the universe (laughs) it just made me feel very small and very insignificant (laughs) well Lovecraft can be characterised in one respect as a science fiction or at least a science fantasy author Um, his the religions that he develops in the novels they've got a basis in alien and or extra dimensional beings so if you worship them in the stories they deliver you know, they'll give you fish, they'll give you gold, all sorts of things. They'll also take your soul and leave you gibbering in the darkness. But they will do those things. As the old um, the joke motto of um, Miskatonic University runs, a small sacrifice for science. So you've been editor-in-chief of the American Rationalist magazine, edited books about atheism in America. So speak to me of Lovecraft's own religion and how it ties in with the Cthulhu mythos. Actually, I was inspired to become an atheist, at least in part and perhaps large part, through Lovecraft. He himself was an atheist for the whole of his life. He claimed he had become, you know, he had lost his uh, Christian faith as the early, early as the age of five. Now, not quite sure that's right, but uh, certainly <laughs> by his teenage years, you know, especially when he started starting 
studying astronomy, and that's when he really gained a sense of the the vastness of the universe. He says the the the, the conventional religions of the earth, especially Christianity, simply uh, are not credible. And in my view. Uh, much of his fiction does indeed reflect that atheism in the sense that these imaginary gods that he populates uh, in his tales are not actually gods. They're space aliens. They're, they're simply aliens from outer space. We human beings, not accustomed to, to uh, encountering such vast, uh, powerful creatures, worship them as gods because that's the natural uh, human myth-making faculty. And, mm-hmm. and Lovecraft really was a kind of anthropologist in that regard and in showing how human beings uh, uh, react when faced with, with the bizarre. Well, this may not be the earliest example of uh, these tropes that we encounter in, in science fiction or fantasy or horror or any combination of those things, but it's certainly the most popular and it's been the most enduring. And, and you see this sort of trope popping up all the time. I mean, in as disparate uh, mediums as, uh, as Star Trek, where they're always running into aliens who turn out to be the uh, the prototypes for our early gods. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it strikes me that um, he's being very subversive in the time that he's writing. Oh, yeah. His, he was a very forward-looking uh, writer. I mean, a lot of weird fiction draws upon the past draws upon myth, uh, you know, myths of the vampire, the werewolf, the haunted house, the ghost. Lovecraft recognized that those myths, those tropes were simply not usable anymore. We knew too much about the universe uh, to have any credibility in a, in a, in, in a vampire, in even even in the context of a, of a story. So he said, where can I find the source of horror today in, in, in the 1920s? It has to be the depths of space because we simply don't know what's out there, uh, and and the 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 secret is that Lovecraft did exercise a tremendous influence on future science fiction writers. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001: A Space Odyssey is very much in line with Lovecraft's oh. uh, view of of gods that who you know gods are aliens who perhaps have guided human evolution. Uh, there's a strong theme in that uh, in in Lovecraft and Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, read two of Lovecraft's great stories at the Mountains of Madness and, and the Shadow Out of Time in their original publications in Astounding Stories and, and testifies to how fascinated he was with those stories. Uh, uh, other writers like Philip K. Dick, uh, Arthur um, um, uh, Fritz Leiber, many other writers have been influenced by Lovecraft. Oh, yes. There's really, in my personal library at home, you, you cannot throw a, uh, a bookmark without hitting a book that has at least some influence from Lovecraft in it. You know, I was just, just leafing idly through it the other day. Um, David Drake has a story uh, in an anthology that's about uh, basically one of those out-of-Africa-type stories where he goes and finds a, a Cthulhu kind of creature in a jungle. Everybody's done it. Um, and, and the influence just echoes on through... Um, uh, John Carpenter, Cronenberg uh, in the cinema. Now, there's an interesting side point. Um, I think Lovecraft has been entirely well served in, in, in cinema adaptations or television. I think the best adaptations of Lovecraft uh, in in film are not those that explicitly adapt a given story. Many of those are frank failures, chiefly because uh, a lot of these filmmakers didn't have much of a budget. Uh, they they mm. and they simply didn't understand uh, how to convey that sense of Lovecraftian horror. Uh, much more successful are are those films that indirectly draw upon some of Lovecraft's themes. 
I think the chief of these is Alien. There is no mm. question that uh, uh, that the filmmakers of Alien uh, knew a lot about Lovecraft and wanted to convey some of that sense of of cosmic alienation that's that's in his work. I will mention uh, f- for your audience in particular, I think that Peter Weir's The Last Wave unquestionably draws upon Lovecraft. Um, He's somebody on that film, whether he himself or somebody else, had to have read The Shadow Out of Time, which, as you know, is partially set in Australia. Mm. Uh, But there's there's a scene right at the end of that film that without without question to my mind uh, draws upon that story do you think that um, because australia you know we've got the pacific connection and we're as far away from um, new england that you can possibly get do you think that that struck him as a good place for sort of lost world type? oh yeah i think yeah. so you know in his day i mean there was not that many places in in the world that were sort of unknown uh, uh, that's part of the reason why he said at the mountains of madness in the antarctic we mm. still didn't know that much about the antarctic at that time uh, and you know the 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 the, the great sandy desert of australia was a pretty unknown quantity to him at any rate uh, let's be honest uh, he picked up a lot of his facts about uh, australia from the encyclopedia but that's okay <laughs> he seemed to have done it pretty well but uh, yeah that that's a that's a very compelling story i think speaking of at the mountains of madness and antarctica um, this is a thing that lovecraft seems to easily be plugged into any successive zeitgeist of any time so we've got global warming and and now i'm reading stories fictional stories that are like you know well the 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 elder gods are stirring under the ice that's melting above them it it seems to be something that you can just take and go this is how it fits into our times do you think do you think he'd be uh, quite happy with that idea that his his writing seems to be for eternity I think he'd be dumbfounded at the extent to which he was he's now so popular. You know, it's such a sad story in many ways. Yeah. Here's a guy, you know, didn't even live a long time, but mostly published in these cheap pulp magazines, you know, weird tales, astounding stories. In his lifetime he had no book of his stories published, not one. Yeah. There was a very poor edition of one story called The Shadow Over Innsmouth, uh, published in book form by a friend of his, uh, you know, 200 copies that cost a dollar, uh, complete failure, really. Um, and yet now look at him, you know, his sto- stories are published around the world, at least 30 different languages, uh, Russian, Chinese, Turkish, Serbo-Croatian, you name it. And and this pervasive influence that he's had on pop culture, um, you know, film, comic books, role-playing games, it's, it's simply staggering. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine someone walking up. This is like that old. Th- there's a Doctor Who story where they uh, uh, they visit Vincent Van Gogh and they bring him to the 21st century and show him from an art gallery. I imagine the same with Lovecraft, and then someone handing him a, a Cthulhu plushie, <laughs> you know I mean? the plush doll. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are Cthulhu Christmas ornaments too. Yes. I'm not sure how that that works, but uh, I think Lovecraft deliberately, in some sense, wrote timeless stories he he didn't want to you know have his work tied to his own era um uh, there are actually not very many memorable characters in his story understandably because his scope was much wider than that um so you don't really have to understand his historical era to to get lovecraft i hadn't thought about it before but just then when you said that i'm wondering does he repeat any characters apart from various gods and stuff? Uh, the, the, there's one character, Randolph Carter, who goes through about four or five different stories. Uh, mm-hmm. But 
changes radically uh, in each one of them. Uh, and people have often said, oh, that's just a stand-in for Lovecraft, but it's much more complex than that. Uh, uh, Carter is a sort of a guide to the imaginary worlds uh, of Lovecraft, whether they are set in the dream worlds, he had a whole cycle of dreamland stories, or in some cases, the real world. Hmm. I was... Um you know, like it's inescapable. I was reading uh, a book by uh, British critic and writer uh, Kim Newman, and he um, had written a, a book for the, the BFI, the British Film Institute, about um, Quatermass and the Pit. Mm-hmm. And of course, that story has so many Lovecraftian elements of of uh, ancient beings visiting Earth and, and changing our, our genetic structure. Actually, that is one of the earliest uh, books and films, uh, uh, you know, that uses Lovecraft as, as a source. Uh, Nigel Neal wrote yeah. the books uh, as well. Uh, I mean, those were from, from the 50s, right? 50s, early 60s. Yeah. Um, uh, and yet there's been a tradition, even in Lovecraft's day, that, that some of his friends began writing imitations of his stories, or at least drawing upon his uh, conceptions, even in his own lifetime, you know, whether it be August Derleth or Frank Belknap Long or Robert Howard, uh, Donald Wandry. Um, I think it's a bit of an exaggeration to say that Lovecraft encouraged these uh, writings. I think some some of these writers just sat down and wrote these stories and <laughs> sent them to Lovecraft. And, you know, he was a very kind, gentlemanly individual, and he generally praised the stories. So uh, it just kind of took off. Uh, but certainly after Lovecraft's death, it's really taken off. Uh, yeah. Yes. We have people like Neil Gaiman has written a number of good Lovecraft stories. Uh, Stephen mm. King early in his career. Uh, Peter Straub wrote a whole novel called Mister X that's really uh, uh, profoundly influenced by Lovecraft. Charles Stross, we've been we've mm. reviewed a few of his books too. Yep. Yeah. I think Stross actually mentions me in one, yes. one of his stories, oddly <laughs> enough. So I become a minor character in, in his story. Uh, Brian Lumley, of course. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not real keen on Mr. Lumley. <laughs> I, I don't think Lumley has uh, uh, really understood where Lovecraft was coming from. Yeah. Um, but he, he became very popular with a lot of his work. He's good with vampires, I yep. think. Vampires are his... his I was going to say meat and potatoes, but we won't go there. (laughs) All right, let's have a a track here uh, from Nox Arcana, their Necronomicon album, and it's uh, Cthulhu Rising. This is Neil Gaiman in the Dangerous Alphabet Zero, G comes last, Z waits alone, and it's not for a thing. Nox Arcana there with Cthulhu Rising. I I would speak that with a lisp. (laughs) Cthulhu Rising. Ah, oh dear. Uh, the Necronomicon. And here we are, boldly going where Necronomicon has gone before. We are talking to S.T. Jossie, who is... Joshie, sorry, with, who is with the um, Necronomicon. I'm going to get sick of saying that. I know, it's a bit of a tongue. <laughs> with the uh, the conference event. Um, he's a, one of the guest speakers at that, and he's been in Canberra. Tonight he uh, is in Melbourne at the... Um, uh, the Royal... Oh, yes, at the... Um, Royal Melbourne Hotel. Royal Melbourne Hotel. And in Hobart on Wednesday the 26th and in Sydney on Friday the 28th. Doing a bit of the rounds here of Melbourne. It's at uh, 5.30 tonight at the Royal too, by the way, in case you wanted to know. Now, um, we were talking about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, the works of, and I was talking about um, films and, and television shows that reference it, the writers' works. So many of them. Uh, and my two f- personal favourites, I think, uh, is Stuart Gordon's Dagon, mm. which actually is kind of based on um, Dagon, but also Shadow Over in's Mouth, uh, and. Um, a real favourite, which actually turned out to be a, a low-budget one, but um, an excellent 
adaptation as well. Um, the Whisperer in Darkness, which um, is a black and white movie, and uh, it's directed by uh, Sean Brainy. If you ever get a chance to catch up with The Whisperer in the Darkness, do. It's one of the, the one of the most effective HP Lovecraft adaptations that I've seen, and also more accurate than most. <laughs> Do you have a personal favourite in all of the, the adaptations? I do. Uh, as I say, there are lots and lots of very bad Lovecraft adaptations, yes. but a really good one uh, is actually a German uh, production, uh, Die Farbe, uh, that is The Color, uh, adaptation of The Color Out of Space. Now, uh-huh. the director is actually a Vietnamese uh, man named Huan Vu, I believe his name is. Spectacular film. I mean, a, and it, it is almost purely black and white until the end when the color appears. Uh, and it's set, actually set in post-war Germany, mm-hmm. um, but a brilliant, brilliant adaptation of that story. Oh, it's actually the color out of space. Is actually, one of the stories in um, in the anthology, the old anthology that I've got, the uh, the Haunter of the Dark and of the Tales. Uh, yes, I remember that one with particular terror. Also, Pickman's model. Ah, the one, the one where the I suppose. All right, this is a spoiler, but you know, it's been a while. Uh, this is the one where the the artist uh, has these wonderful or horrific pictures that he does. They're so true to life, and they're evil monsters, and uh, and they actually are true to life because he's got one of the things, a portal or something, in his basement, and he's painting from life or unlife or whatever it is. Uh, but so many of these great stories in here. That actually, for me, the Lovecraft's short stories are really the the, the main sort of thing for the whole um, the canon. Um, I would have been curious to see what he would have thought of uh, adaptations for cinema and uh, and television and. Well, we actually have quite a, a fair amount of um, uh, documentary evidence in the, in the form of Lovecraft's letters. Um, he actually liked film. He actually mm-hmm. liked the early films of Charlie Chaplin. He enjoyed them. <laughs> they were quite funny. He was a way of getting out of himself, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, um, he was less keen on the horror you know, films of his era. I mean, they were to some degree somewhat crude, but I also think that Lovecraft went about, uh, or had, a, had a kind of false perspective i think he wanted a, a film to be absolutely literally faithful to the to the literary work it was adapting and that's why he he despised frankenstein and dracula the the the, the films of 1931 because uh-huh. he didn't feel they were true to life he did however greatly enjoy the phantom of the opera uh-huh. uh, he saw that in new york city in 1925 or 26 um, and in fact it's funny he says uh, yeah we went to the theater there with my wife and uh, uh, the beginning was so slow that i fell asleep <laughs> but then i woke up, you know, and then saw that great, you know, Lon Chaney turning around with that horrible face, and that was that was fabulous. So he got a big kick out of that one, anyway. When I was watching um, uh, Dagon, Stuart Gordon's um, fairly recent film, actually, uh, kind of a um, a long echo of his uh, reanimator movies. Uh, this one was um, from two thousand and one, I think, mm-hmm. roughly. And and this film, um, it, it's got the fish man. It's got the the elder god being worshipped by a, a strange community by the seashore. Uh, and Stuart Gordon has this odd connection with close connection with mainstream fame because he was going to. Uh, it's because connected with a, a project where they'd gotten the rights to Iron Man. With back in early on, I think in the eighties, and he was kind of going to direct an, a B grade Iron Man movie, and it was like, would it have struck then and then been so important? As it is, though, he's well known to uh, Lovecraftians as, as one of the most 
enthusiastic, shall we say, <laughs> adapters of the uh, of the canon. Um, and when I was watching it again, it, it occurred to me that there's there's several ways to look at Lovecraft's story. Okay, this one's got a, a community of, um, of very odd people who have decided to worship uh, Dagon instead of um, uh, Jesus and the whole Christian faith because this sea monster creature delivers fish and gold to them. So, you know, it's, it's a practical sort of religion for them. Uh, and I was thinking, if you look at this, if you sort of turn it on its tentacled head, if you look at the whole thing from the point of view of the villagers, instead of from the poor guy who gets shipwrecked there, and it's sort of like, oh, these, 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 these people come in, they destroy our, our, our place of worship, they set fire to us, they do all these horrible things. And, and I kind of feel a little bit sorry for them. Because they're, they're a bit, you know, they're, they're, let's, let's face it, they are people in transition. Um, they're turning into fish creatures. They really just want to go, be left alone to go back into the sea. If it wasn't for the fact that they were flaying people's skin off their faces and wearing the faces as masks, they'd actually be the kind of people who you might admire. Um, yes, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Lovecraft in the story actually has this old man, Zadok Allen, hmm. tell the narrator yes. uh, the, the sort of the history of Innsmouth, and, he, and he, this guy relates how these people were debating, oh, should we, uh, you know, worship Dagon or should we stick with our own faith? And then one of the guys says, well, you know, you got you to gotta go with the gods, actually give, give you something, you know, we're not getting anything out of, out of, out of God here. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but the thing is, in, in, in the Lovecraft story, uh, the idea is that these, these colonies are actually all over the earth. I mean, it just yeah. happens that the particular narrator is in Innsmouth in Massachusetts, but they apparently are all over and they are threatening to take over the world. Uh, although he, Lovecraft goes on to say, well, you know, the deep ones, as he calls his fish creatures, uh, the deep ones could, could overwhelm mankind at any time, but we can't be bothered. It, it's not <laughs> worth our effort. <laughs> oh, dear. And this is the thing. Um, when you read the stories, look, there's not not a whole lot of laughs in them, but there is actually one story I read, and uh, you'll, you'll know the title, uh, where um, he's actually making fun of horror writers and... and it's, a, it's just a short story, and he's sort of saying about the other horror writers. Oh, they would use well, my, this, these words they would use. And, Maybe know. you're talking about the unnameable. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is, that is, yeah. That's a story. That's actually sort of a meta story about yeah. about the writing of horror fiction. It's really <laughs> clever, actually. So yeah, he actually has quite a sense of humour, even to the extent of being able to pull off what I would have thought was impossible—a uh, haunted house tale essentially but the, the the mansion under question is haunted by pigeons essentially <laughs> oh, i think you're thinking of robert e howard's pigeons from hell oh huh? am i sorry oh, Rob, okay. he, of course knew robert I, yeah, howard, yeah. I don't know if you read that story because it might have appeared after lovecraft's death i can't remember ah, okay. um but he you know after i've had I'm, a great I'm, admiration for howard i'm, I'm conflating the two yeah <laughs> but, and, and lovecraft and howard actually admired lovecraft and wrote a few lovecraft sort of imitations himself yeah sure uh, there's the black stone is yeah one of there's them. many of his um his uh, snake cults and so on that are very lovecraftian in sort of mm-hmm. practice i have to go back and reread where, where did i why did i think of that oh never mind doesn't matter <laughs> uh, but yeah anyway he he also had a, a a pretty fair sense of humour, as far as I can tell, and some of the 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 domestic horror situations that he's got that are happening, like you know, beneath my apartment, uh, in uh, my uncle's mansion out in the countryside. I feel that he was kind of um, pioneering a trope there that has successfully used by everybody from Stephen King to Richard Matheson. 
Lovecraft actually was one of the pioneers of what is now called urban horror. Mm. Uh, you know, especially those two years he spent in New York City. Very bad years for him. Very tough. I mean, he, he couldn't get a job. His wife uh, had to leave and go work in the Midwest. He was left all alone there. Uh, he got robbed of all his clothing at one point. <laughs> that was horrible. So he said, oh my God. So he wrote three or four stories that really grimly portray the, the horrors of New York City. You know, the horror at Red Hook. Yeah. He, Cool Air, which actually was a, there was a Pretty good adaptation on uh, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, if you remember that, uh, mm-hmm. way back in the, in the early 70s. Um, but yeah, uh, a lot of people have picked up on that urban horror theme, especially Fritz Leiber in stories like Smoke Ghost and, and, and a number of other things. And, you know, Leiber was in touch with Lovecraft for about a year, uh, just at the very end of Lovecraft's life. And because, because there were so many other authors connected with him at the time, I mean, we know him for his own work. But we also know him because the other authors have picked up and, and run with it, whether in, um, well, let's call them authorised uh, um, anthologies that have come later on in time. Now, where, does the, where do the rights for um, Lovecraft's work now rest? Lovecraft's work pretty much is now in the public domain, at least the fiction, because uh, well, it's a very complicated story, and, yeah. and of course, U.S. copyright law differs from uh, other other nations. But uh, um, yeah, it's uh, uh, you know. Uh, Virtually everything of Lovecraft's has been published. Uh, you know, he only wrote about fifty or sixty stories. He ghost wrote or, or collaborated on about a dozen more stories. Uh, wrote lots of essays, not of any great interest. Wrote a lot of poetry, also not of any great interest. But there's some good weird poetry. But what he did write were thousands, tens of thousands of letters. And uh, I'm in the course of publishing that complete body of work. It's Four and a half million words wow. that we have. Uh, it's going to fill about 25 volumes. I've, I've done about 10 or 12 of them uh, myself, and the other ones are coming if I can live long enough. This is like Tolkien, isn't it? It's a staggering amount of material. I mean, it's so much greater than all his com- collected uh, uh, fiction, essays, poetry combined, but it, and it reveals so much about him. He, You know, everybody thinks of Lovecraft as sort of a stern, you know, reserved New Englander, and a lot of New Englanders are indeed like that to, to this day. Uh, but... And he may have been that way in person sometimes, but in his letters, he just pours out his heart to to all these people, you know. And it's just like he needed that method of communication. Uh, he wanted to get out his views and his beliefs and his his way of looking at the world to people. And it's it's they're they're so revealing in that way. He'd have a blog nowadays, wouldn't he? He was a blogger in that <laughs> sense. Oh, he wrote. You know, he spent six hours a day writing letters. Oh my goodness! You know, he must, you know some people wrote, think he wrote about a hundred thousand letters. That may be a little too much, probably. But even if he wrote. 80,000, that's a lot of letters. We don't have nearly a fraction of those. We have, if we have like five or 10,000, I'd be surprised. Uh, uh, still a lot of letters, and they're going to take up a lot of space. Anything in, just as a for instance, give us a hint of, of something that you've been surprised by reading about, even if it's like trivial or. Oh, there's so, so much. I mean, the, the humor that you've mentioned actually is very prevalent in his letters. He loves to use slang and colloquialism and just plays around with things. Um, and the funny thing is that uh, we learned that Lovecraft uh, sang as a as a teenager. <laughs> he liked those. He he didn't. He claimed not to be interested in classical music. He said, "I just don't. I just don't get it." Uh, but he loved the popular songs of his day. You know, on the banks of the Wabash and uh, things like that. And he apparently sang them. He had a little 
group called the Blackstone Military Band. He, he played a little instrument. He sang. He apparently actually recorded some songs on a, on what is called a, a wax cylinder, you know, at the sure. time, the old uh, uh, kind of a 78 uh, 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 recording. But then he conveniently dropped it, and so <laughs> so we don't have it. But apparently had a very nice tenor voice. Which instrument, by the way? <laughs> He claimed to play an instrument called the zobo. We don't even know what that is exactly. Z o b o. I had a lot of difficulty figuring out what that was. It's kind of like a harmonica or a kazoo or something like that. Um, but but uh, you know, it's, uh, you, you know, he had these little childhood publications. You know, little magazines that he sort of hand wrote at, in, in his teenage years, and he has little ads for his own little band. You know, say, come here, the band. You know, we're playing at wherever. Uh, very funny. Well, it makes me wonder if the the famous um, chant in um, in the Cthulhu stories, if he, if that was if that had a tune to it or something like that, that he that he would sit there when he was writing and go. You know, this it's, is a tune. it's you know it's funny. We have all this huge body of letters, but he really never says how he came up with that term. He do, he claims to have had a pronunciation for it, and it's more like Cthulhu. It's that the th is not really a th; it's kind of a yeah. guttural l, but. Whatever, uh, but he, you know, he never says how did how did you come up with that name, and we just don't know. He said he spent a lot of time working on it. You know, I I once conjectured, oh, maybe he just sat at the typewriter and started typing <laughs> random letters, but apparently not. He came up, you know, he had Wait, some sort of system. Did he have a cat? He did have a cat. He owned a cat in, in his earlier years. <laughs> Let me see. See, <laughs> you know that is possible. It's possible. <laughs> Anyone who has a cat knows that. And then that language, yeah, that couplet you you tell, you know, in, in his house at Rillier, yeah. waits dreaming, you know, and uh, the Rillierian language, uh, uh, very ingenious uh, how he came up with that because it seems to work as a language. It's like Tolkien in more ways than one because mm. he was so big on philology and, and linguistics. All right, well, um, we've been chatting to S.T. Joshi, who is uh, an American writer who's got so much to say about H.P. Lovecraft, and you can get a bit of taste of that tonight at the Royal Melbourne Hotel, which is part of his um, speaking tour in Australia. He will also be in Hobart and Sydney. We'll write down the details for you so that you'll be able to find that out. Thank you very much for coming in, and thank you, David, who is sitting here quietly. Um, talking uh, well, uh, while we've been yapping. Uh, appreciate you bringing out ST. And uh, are there any further um, events that um, you'd like to mention that are coming up, David, that might be of interest to our listeners? Uh, nothing planned at the moment. I mean, the original um, um, session in uh, Canberra was uh, basically a collaboration between ST and Larry Sitsky. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be um, um, working with Larry again in the future, I hope. And um, But... Um, from the the outcome of the, um, the the meeting of minds in Canberra, there's uh, there's real interest in um, having yeah. ST again and pursuing this idea. Certainly, a lot of interest um, from places that we're not visiting, uh, such as Brisbane and, and Perth. So we may have to um, woo him back again <laughs> in the future. Of course, and and we'll look forward with great anticipation to. Is there a tentative title for the letters of H.P. Lovecraft? Well, That's we're, it. <laughs> we're, yeah, it's going to be twenty-five volumes. I'll tell you, and we, we've we've done about a dozen already. More to come. Especially these letters we're about to publish to his. Well, to his family in general, but particularly to these two aunts, uh, that, that was all that was really left of his family after his mother and father died. Um, he wrote lots of letters to his aunts, especially during that tough period in New York, and they're, 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 they're anguished letters, I'll tell you, really, really touching, poignant letters about how 
miserable he was. Uh, then he comes home then and, and has this glorious reawakening to his hometown of Providence. And that's when he writes, you know, all of a sudden he writes The Call of Cthulhu and, and Pickman's Model and, and, and The Case with Charles X. Ward and The Color of Space. And you can tell how, how thrilled he was at being back home. Mm-hmm. Are these coming out from... Uh not the aunts, but the uh, but the Necronomicon uh, press. Uh, Hippocampus Press Hippocampus is press. The, the current publisher now. And okay. uh, hmm. all right, well, thank you very much. Uh, it's been very educational, I thought, uh, and um, we'll give you the details for all of the events. Thanks a lot, ST and David. Good being here. And thanks also to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. Now, our next track will be our weekly David Bowie track, and I picked out one that will riff off the whole Elder Gods thing because it's um, the Superman track, and it's from the man who sold the World album. And if you listen closely to the lyrics, you'll get that he had some interest in the Lovecraftian phenomena himself. This is Kim Stanley Robinson, author of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Here we had the Superman, David Bowie, the man who sold the world there. Did you catch the uh, the Elder Gods references in there? <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a Studio Ghibli marathon on SBS World Movies, the new SBS station. Yay! Channel uh, 32, I think they're calling it. And in their first weekend on July 6th and 7th, well, have you ever been so caught up in one of Ghibli's lyrical, whimsical, animated treasures that you wish it would go on forever? <laughs> Always. This is your chance. Uh, they're going to screen Ghibli movies in non-stop rotation from 6am to 7.30pm on the Saturday and Sunday of the 6th and 7th of July. Great. So they've got the uh, old standard Ghibli crown jewels from Howl's Moving Castle to Spirited Away through to Kiki's Delivery Service and Laputa Castle in the Sky. I don't know. I don't think they um playing Porco Rosso and uh, Princess Monaco oh. either. But that may be because they're playing English language um, uh, translations. Right. Because they're trying to bring in some the younger viewers for this yeah. one. Yeah. I'm not sure there's dubs for those ones. Hmm. There may be. There may not be. Uh, I tend to listen to them, watch them in... Um, with subtitles if I'm going to. But the House Moving Castle dub I quite liked, actually. The first ones that they did of the Ghibli ones were pretty bad dubs, but then they, they, they realised how big these things were and they started getting everybody in on exactly. them. So They actually know. spent a bit of money. They got Billy Crystal to be Calcifer yeah. and I think Christian Bale was in that one as well, so they realised that they should... Uh, yeah. T- Tina Fey's the mum in um, Ponyo. Is she? Yeah. Oh. There's so many people in there. We'll see. There you go. Uh, Lauren Bacall yeah, plays she was in the house. witch in... Yeah, house so. in the castle. Okay. Uh, but ones which you don't see as much, several of which are very recent ones, are The Red Turtle mm-hmm. and When Marnie Was There and The Boy and the Beast and Mary and the Witch's Flower, which oh, nice. some of which I haven't seen, so happy to see those on the new Digital World Movie Channel, which is such a, a good idea. Um, makes you wonder what's left, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess. But they, they were saying that they were going to have Killing of a Sacred Deer as well on, oh. on there eventually. As, and they're saying like 700 films a year, roughly, on Goodness this me. new channel. So it's not a, a streaming one at the moment. So, hmm. But then again, you've had lots of chance to get them streamed on the, on the SBS side. And anyway. they have a pretty good range on, on demand anyway. Yeah. So. All right. Over to Men in Black International. Yes. 
We both went along. We did. It's the fourth of the Men in Black films based on Lowell Cunningham's Malibu Marvel published comics. So does that make this a Marvel movie? Sort of, kind no. of, perhaps. Uh, and um, there has been – there was a lot – that span off that original um, Will Smith and um, Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones movie. Um, I actually kind of met them at a press conference once for one of the Men in Black films, number oh, two, cool. I think. Yeah, I, I only had like two seconds, so I asked Tommy Lee Jones what it was like playing um, Coriolanus. <laughs> <laughs> So that was my moment of non-sequitur nonsense. This film is directed by F. Gary Gray, who mm-hmm. we know from the remake of The Italian Job, uh, Law Abiding Citizen and Straight Outta Compton. Ah. Mm. What an eclectic Well, he, he, also, he also did the number eight in the Fast and the Furious franchise, The Fate of the Furious. Oh, that was a... Yeah, mm. okay. Big, big film, that yeah. one. Yeah. It's written by Art Maccum and Matt Holloway, and they're a writing duo, a screenwriting team. And in their credits is Iron Man. Okay. The first movie. But I don't think you should get too excited by that because um, they were um, two writers amongst many. Right. And also, of course, um, uh, John Favreau, Work through the script and many of the comic book um, writers as well. Too, yeah, so, I think, yeah. and then you know you give a script to Robert Downey Jr. and he's improving away. Mm. Anyway, so it's like, yeah, okay, but so okay, maybe not get too excited about the fact that they wrote Iron Man, and then think about the fact that they also wrote Punisher: Warzone mm. and Transformers: The Last Night. Oh. So two notorious turds. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Punisher Warmer Zone. Yeah, all right, okay, we'll go. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, uh, this film is is not a re. It kind it kind of feels like they're rebooting the franchise. Yeah, um, they're trying to do like a Bond thing. Yeah, but it's also a sequel, mm. so it's not just a rejigging of it. Uh, in Brooklyn in 1996, so they're harking back to the era of the first film. Uh, a little girl called Molly, she sees her parents being neuralised, having their memories wiped by agents of the men in black. Um, she helps an alien to escape and doesn't get neuralised. And this leads to a, of course, as it always does, an obsession in her life yes. to find out who, what and where the men in black are located with an any object in mind of joining them, mm. as you would. Not bringing them down. Yeah. She wants to join them, uh, presumably to uh, find out about all of the truth in the behind the universe. Um, she is played by Tessa Thompson, and the boss of the MIB is played by Emma Thompson. Oh, yeah. Well, she's is she the boss, or she's the boss of the American branch? She seems to be in charge of the, Although the I guess, whole thing. Yeah, she oversaw... The UK branch, which was headed, is headed up by Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, who plays Agent T or High T, as they I call him whimsically. Oh, very cute. Well done. So, as as the rookie woman in black, she mm. is going to be teamed up with Chris Hemsworth, who's playing Agent H, and he's in the uh, the UK branch. So, thus, we are justified by calling it MIB International mm. because we'll go to London, we'll go to other points as well. Yeah. Um, now, Chris Hemsworth actually has, I think, some pretty good comedic chops. Yeah. With Thor and the way he plays him now. <laughs> yes, true. I agree. He's, um, he's quite a remarkable secretary in Ghostbusters. Yeah. 
And he also, was very good at playing a mimbo. Also the villain that he played in Bad Day at the El Royale. He was very good in that. He was great I in say. that. Actually quite sinister. So. so here's your buddy buddy team for this one. Mm. Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson. And the first problem with this film is I don't think that really works too well. Yeah, unfortunately, I agree. I think the casting seems fantastic on face value and they do have a nice chemistry together, but there's some core magic missing there that Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones had that they just don't have. And I don't think it's because it's not... It's a different mixture. Like, just because it's not a curmudgeonly old man and a young upstart doesn't mean it can't work. I just think there's something about there's some magic missing Mm. with that being the core duo. Is that kind of what your feeling was as well? Yes. And I know you can't speak to the film that we didn't see, but I would have really liked to have seen, for example, the Thompson twins playing the the rookie and the veteran. Oh, so like Emma Thompson paired with Tessa Tessa, Thompson. Yeah. I could see that working. I could see the gender change up maybe doing some good things uh, and the mentorship arrangement being different just as... Um, we saw in Captain Marvel recently where, yeah. you know, so I, I just think a change-up might have been good. Okay, it would have thrown, blown the incels' little minds out of the water. I don't care about that. That's true. <laughs> I also feel there is something, though, about that gender flip that feels gimmicky to me. Even though yeah. I agree with you, it probably would work a lot better. It just feels a bit... It does. Even as someone who would love to see that on screen. But I'm, I'm scrabbling to find something that might make this film work because it doesn't. No, and the thing is it's also the plot of which is muddled. Yes. And to say the least is muddled. And it's, and it's also basic. Very, it's so basic. Oh, God. And I knew what was going to happen on yeah. the first scene. It has two major reveals in this film, and both of them are obvious from the first time they actually introduce the yeah. the point where you, you think that they, it's like, oh, here's the MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah we're going to get a flip here. And, yeah. but, and there's some parts of it that are very poorly explained, so you can't even grab onto what little plot there is there. There's characters that seem to be there for almost no reason. Mm-hmm. And I actually feel a bit disappointed that we don't get a good montage scene of her becoming an agent. Sorry to spoil that. Yeah. And um, you also, I don't feel their characters are really characters either. One walk-in is uh, Rebecca Ferguson playing um, uh, Reza Stavros, mm. an, an alien intergalactic's arms dealer, who actually... Does actually have a good pun off the fact that she's an arms dealer, but we won't go there. Um, but she was in uh, Mission Impossible playing uh, the MI6 agent Ilsa Faust, mm. and she was also in Life, the sci-fi horror movie. Oh, that's and she was Morgana in The Kid Who Would Be King, a mm. movie which mm. I have a lot of regard for. And also she's playing Rose the Hat in Doctor Sleep. <gasps> And Lady Jessica in Dune. Great. This is a, an actress who is going places. Yeah, for sure. And not with this movie. Not though. in this movie. She's just there, and you think, "Why are you here?" Yeah. You know, there's you're here to give the character, the main character, Chris Hemsworth's character. A, well, maybe actually Chris Hemsworth isn't the main character. He's trying to give him a bit of a backstory, and it just doesn't work. So lame. Um, two actors who I did enjoy this film. Uh, Laurent and Larry Bourgeois. Oh, yes. The alien twins. The hot alien twins. They're great. They're actually professional dancers and choreographers. You can so see. that dancing was, yeah, right. Yeah, they okay. do some dancing. Uh, they're in um, the new Cats movie that's coming out at the end <gasps> of the year too. I wonder who they play. Cats. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, they've lots of great presence there. And, um, you know. Um, 
in fact, there's a lot that went wrong behind the scenes on this film. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. there was a lot of – it's a trouble production. Okay. Um, a lot of backwards and forwards. I uh, think some things got paired back. I was reading up a yeah. little bit on it. There was some ideas that were meant to be in there and then they got – which, you know, which might have made it work a bit better, it off. but who can, who can say? I also feel that um, it's possible that it relied a bit too much on the established franchise angle and yeah. the gimmicks and the gadgets and the cool sunglasses and didn't put enough energy into plot, character and dialogue. <laughs> so They felt like they shame. were name-checking those things. Yeah. You know, at one stage they bring back the original car from the first movie and it's like a moment, but it's not the Batmobile. That's the thing. All those you know, little moments that are meant to really re- resound, resonate, yeah. use my words, uh, just didn't. And it was disappointing. Yeah. Um, I swear, I could, you know, I saw watching this, I appreciated Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson's acting. Mm. They actually were acting their hearts out. I think that I does not cast anything on their quality of as actors at all, in my no. opinion. Um, I think they did what they could inside a sinking canoe mm. that thought it was a battleship. <laughs> yeah. So I'm disappointed. Yeah. Uh, I, I just give this a, a nah rating, mm. really. Um, and, and I'm sorry to say that because I have enjoyed some of the entries in the Men in Black series. And they put out a bloody good animated television show, too. And that first movie was like a groundbreaking. I remember loving that as a kid. Yeah, it's that great. was just. Yeah, it was incredible. It was fun. It was like kicked off Will Smith's career. Mm. I think this could have been probably not that big, but a bit of fun at least. The trailer made me feel like it might be be quite good, but everything else let it down. Yeah. There's a few good interactions and then, yeah. Um, and I thought maybe the, there's a little alien character in it who kind of was the comic relief and, and he actually was a little bit amusing yeah. in parts. Yeah. Uh, and. I think that one of the things that I did like, um, I did like Danny Elfman's score because it was nostalgic for the it's old one. It's a throwback. That's it. It's not even a fresh thing, really. Rafe Spall is in this as well. Yeah. He plays another agent, Agent C. He's, he's not even using his real accent either. He's no. kind of made it extra British and extra <laughs> pompous. Um, but I do like I like him and I feel like why, why did you... Why did they cast him in this role that was it's almost a, inconsequential? It's a few scoops of a full Cornetto trilogy there. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I, one thing I would would like to say is I like the way they used um, Marrakesh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. It, it, they they focused upon a more streetsy sort of look to a place, and I felt like I was there for a bit. Yeah, and it didn't feel like it didn't feel cheap. Yeah, and I the thought suits, it was good. They wore the suits well. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes, definitely. And that's a sh- it's a big shame. I think they're yeah. both great actors. It should have and could have been really fun and and awesome, but uh, it was a Bit of a letdown. Yeah, I don't think this is going to go places, really. I think we could check now and the uh, box office ain't going places at all. So. No, I think it's doing about as well as Dark Phoenix. <sighs> Which was what? Is that... So- no, that's not Sony. This is Sony. Um, yeah. Anyway. Big news is that Avengers Endgame is going to come out with some extra footage at the end. <gasps> <laughs> Excellent. Because they're trying to get that last ooh, 40 million to, to put it up with Avatar. Yeah, right. Even though right. that's a Disney film, too. <laughs> <laughs> Such strange sibling, competition. But sibling sure, rivalry. But sure. uh, oh, well. We, we checked it out. We checked it out. And we checked out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and it's such a shame because so many people work on these films. I know. And, and, and put their hearts and souls into it. And, and some know. of the art direction stuff is very cool. Like it's, well, you know, yeah, the guns a lot were, of hard work goes the into guns this were and we right. know that. The, the mighty crickets and all those other yeah. guns and stuff. They were fun. All the pieces don't quite come together. No. 
All right, that's about it for Zero G for today. Mm-hmm. Thank you to everybody concerned for coming to the party. And we will go out. Oh, I don't know which track we're going to go out with. Um, we'll go out with a track from uh, Godzilla, the King of Monsters. And we'll go with um, Mothra's song, which is by Bear McCreary, who I first heard in context of New Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. He's a great composer. And this is from the Godzilla King of the Monsters. And Mofra's song has some notation in it that is reminiscent of the original Mofra's mm-hmm. music. They're very reverential in Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.